Hello, it is the 14th of April, and this is Tuesday Night Rheumatology, the Grand Round Series. I'm Jack Cush, wearing my mask. It doesn't really fit, but I'm wearing my mask for a purpose. Everybody should be wearing these. I don't know what the deal is. I was out twice today. I saw at least a third of the people in, you know, big box stores and in a grocery store not wearing a mask. Everyone's supposed to be wearing a mask in public. That's a CDC directive. It doesn't have to be a N95 mask. It can be any, any mask. It can be a hanky that's, you know, with a rubber bands. And there's many easy ways to make facial coverings that cover the mouth and nose. Folks, we got to lead. In this crisis, we need leaders and we need people who are going to be led. You are the, the experts. People are looking to you for the information. Why do we need to force this upon people? Because the numbers are still shocking. They're shockingly bad. You know, I wrote on, uh, in, in, on the website on the 5th of April that we had 9,000 deaths in the United States. Five days later, on the 10th of April, it was now over 18,000. And here we are on the 14th of April, and today it's over 25,000. This is bad news stuff. Obviously, everybody should know that. And why someone can go to the store and not wear a mask and not be reprimanded for it, you should have heard me talk to the manager. It wasn't, it wasn't nice. I was all over them like white on rice. So again, lead. Make sure people are doing what they need to do. In addition to social distancing and hygienic practices, it's, it's all very, very important. Um, I want to bring to your attention uh, uh, one other important item before we get on with today's lecture, our Grand Round series for Tuesday Night Rheumatology, uh, and that is the ACR has come out with um, COVID clinical uh, care guidelines for rheumatic disease patients. This was published on the 11th after the executive committee approved the document that was formulated by a North American task force. That task force included 11 rheumatologists and four infectious disease specialists and addressed a number of key clinical questions. I don't know how they did it, but they really came up with a pretty smart guidance document answering a lot of the questions that all of you had, a lot of the questions that we uh, did address or tried to address in our town hall meeting. Uh, and I think you need to look at that. It's on our website. I posted the link to the ACR website um, in the paper. Uh, in the publication on Room Now, I sort of did a redo. I reordered their guidelines in accordance with the strength of recommendations. You should know that this was an expert consensus guideline because there are no guidelines on stuff like this. This is a crisis. This is an urgent situation for which data is going to be really in short supply. So we need the consensus of experts. Um, the things are graded as being either high consensus, moderate consensus or low. There were no low. There were some high. There was a lot of moderate or moderate to high consensus items. Uh, in general, they do support what we said all along. Do not stop DMARDs because you're concerned about, um, uh, about the corona crisis or the COVID that's out there. Again, for your patients who are stable, who you're taking care of, or you're doing telemedicine on, do not advise them to stop their medicines or stop their steroids or lower their steroids or everybody should start hydroxychloroquine. Again, there's no evidence for any of that. They divided their recommendations up for people who are stable um, and who are either established patients who need ongoing care or new patients who have active disease who need ongoing care. And the bottom line is you treat them as you would normally treat them. The standards of care do not ch change and your job is to treat uh, arthritis and immune diseases. They have another category of patients who are um, possibly positive, and those who are definitely are suspected positive of having the corona uh, infection. And I think that there are some um, important guidelines that you should look at. Uh, I think, again, it, you should read those on our website, on the ACR website. You should also read the report that we had um, from NICE um, in the United Kingdom. NICE came up with guidelines um, a week or so before the ACR that say some of the same things. They say some things differently, um, and I like the way the NICE guidelines end. They end with the fact that you, the leaders, need to encourage your people, your coworkers, 
your employees, you need to maintain morale. You need to be the voice of reason, positivity, and certainty, because um, everyone else doesn't really have those traits but you, because you're informed. Again, it's really easy to be confused and negative uh, if you're listening to all the news. It's not so easy to step up and be positive and certain about what you're saying, and that's why we're doing these conferences, even having grand rounds. So today, we're gonna talk about my favorite topic, febrile disorders and Stills disease, uh, and how to evaluate febrile disorders in patients with rheumatic disease. So I'll start my, my talk by um, sharing the screen, and hopefully you'll see what I see. So this is our um, title slide. I'm the speaker, Jack Cush from UT Southwestern, and room now. I do research for a lot of companies, including companies that make some of the products I may speak about here. I'm a consultant for these same companies. It's up to you to, to decide whether there's a conflict there or not. Let's begin with a definition of febrile syndromes. Um, there's a lot of things out there, including FUO, periodic fevers, and autoinflammatory disease. Autoinflammatory disease is an important consideration here because we're talking about disorders where there's inflammation that is unrelated to infection, autoantibodies, and antigen-specific T-cell activity. It's often driven by an innate immune response and an excessive inflammasome activity. These are often monogenic disorders that begin in children uh, and sometimes are continued into, uh, throughout childhood you know, or into adolescence and sometimes even in adults. Now, periodic fevers are often a subset of autoinflammatory syndromes, and basically they imply that fever recurs at a certain rate or interval, has a certain periodicity. These two, because they're often autoinflammatory, are hereditary and often monogenic, although it does include some disorders which we don't have the genetic basis for, but we consider to be polygenic. Again, there should be disease-free intervals and a demonstration of recurrence. Fever of unknown origin, FUO, was popularized by Petersdorf back in 1960, another report back in the early 80s. The definitions here are usually two definitions, fever of greater than 101 Fahrenheit for at least two weeks, um, often documented um, either in the hospital or as an outpatient, and after there's been an, ex an extensive evaluation. Again, whether or not there's a hospitalization there is sort of up to the definition, and there are two of them out there. We're gonna consider fevers, uh, and this is a, a data set in, that's uh, housed in, the, in, in, in Europe. It's um, the in-fevers sort of database, and it looks at the monogenic basis of many of these periodic and auto-inflammatory disorders, and we're looking at the ones that are being collected, the cases that are being collected. This is actually about seven or eight years old, so, but it still says the same thing. What's the most common thing we're seeing? Uh, MEFV, MEFV gene rearrangements, that's what you see in familial Mediterranean fever. Next with MVK, that's hyper IgD syndrome. Over here, disorders of NLRP3, NLRP7, that's the inflammasome activity. And down on the bottom, this is what you see with the TRAP syndrome, um, genetic disorders involving the type 1 TNF receptor. These are the kind of things that are common in the auto-inflammatory spectrum, and there are many, many others. In fact, there's hundreds, and actually many that even haven't yet been described. But we're talking about seeing this as a consult or in a patient that you're following, these high spiking fevers, and whether they remain uh, with an elevated baseline or how they return to normal, uh, you're being asked to evaluate that person and say what they may or may not have. So adults do get febrile disorders. You know lupus actually doesn't give you much high fevers. It does when you have serositis um, and CNS involvement, but most lupus can give you low-grade fevers. The things that are most commonly give you fever is that AOSD, adult stills disease, PMR, GCA, and sometimes vas other vasculitides notorious for presenting as FUOs, okay? Patients with the hemophagocytic syndrome or macrophage activation syndrome of whatever cause often due to JIA, Stills disease, but sometimes due to lupus and leukemia and infection. Sweet syndrome, Kikuchi syndrome, lymphoma, leukemia, and Crohn's, I throw in, but they're like the long tail, meaning these are very small um, things in the distribution of what actually happens. When you look at the things that fall under the autoinflammatory spectrum, you know, 
for many of them, including traps on the bottom, FMF, familial, familial Mediterranean fever, muckle wells, about 20 to 30% of those patients are occurring in the adult population. More typically, um, an auto-inflammatory disorder that typically affects adults is Schnitzler syndrome. That's a um, disorder that occurs in adults that is associated with a gammopathy, usually a monoclonal, sometimes polyclonal gammopathy. DITRA, which is a deficiency of the IL-36 receptor, is typically only in adults with a psoriatic and pustular skin disease-like this disorder with fevers. Cyclic neutropenia is usually seen in adults and Stills disease, because it is a pediatric disorder with an adult continuum, occurs in about a third of the cases are uh, occurring in adults, usually between the ages of 16 and 35. So let's talk about this case. A 23-year-old white female was presented to the hospital with a six-week history of fever of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, spiking every day, a rash that, would, that was on her trunk and arms and, and legs. She had a prodromal sore throat in the three days prior to admission. She had on presentation myalgias, wrist pain, belly pain, uh, had a rash on her trunk and extremities. She had previously been hospitalized between the ages of nine and 12 for FUOs, hepatitis, even called rheumatic fever at one point, but obviously no consistency of diagnosis. Now, 20 years later, she shows, shows up in the hospital with a high fever and this constellation. And while in the hospital, she develops pleuritis, pericarditis, generalized lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, a white count of 40,000, and increased hepatic enzymes. I don't think it's hard for you at this point to realize that this patient has Stills disease. So what is Stills disease? When it's in the adult, it's adult onset Stills disease. Um, and, and that is a systemic inflammatory disorder, which occurs in children. And then when it's in young, young adults, it's usually up to age 35, suggesting it is the adult continuum of the pediatric disease, systemic onset JIA. Characterized by what? Quotidian fevers, evanescent rashes, polyarthritis, not monoarthritis, not oligo, poly, prodromal sore throat, serositis, organomegaly, very crazy looking labs, high, high white counts with a left shift, market elevations of cedrate, CRP, and ferritin, and there is no diagnostic test. Hence, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. The problem is that when this was first diagnosed in 19, or first described in 1971 by Eric Bywaters, and then re-described in 72 by Joseph Bujak at the NIH, the stories of these patients were horrendous. Years and years of fevers and negative workups and no known diagnoses. Now the problem is the patient gets in the hospital and on a day, day three or day six, the ID person says, that's not one of my diseases, rheumatologist. it may be Stills disease. And now you have to make an earlier diagnosis, maybe with not the full disease being played out. The disease is characterized by the last bullet, systemic onset with intervals of exacerbations of a systemic disease with or without development of chronic arthritis. And in some people, long disease-free intervals. This is a rare, rare disorder, 0.1 to two cases per 100,000. And if you do the math in Dallas, we expect about 20 cases in this year. If you're in a small city like Fort Collins, Colorado, it's about two cases. If you're in a big city like New York, LA, and Houston, it, you might be seeing 20 or 30 or 40 cases in a year. Question is, are you seeing them, the rheumatologist, and who's making the diagnosis? So first question, Adult onset Stills disease is the same condition as systemic onset JIA, true or false? I think I kind of let the cat out of the bag on that, but it is the same disorder. If you look at the comparison of clinical features that characterize these disorders, the frequency is roughly the same. Over, in the, after the first year, more than 90% of people are gonna have the, the triad of quotidian fever, the Stills rash, and a polyarthritis. The only real difference is in the prodromal sore throat, not common in kids, but very common in adults. All the other features, serositis, the association with carpal ankylosis, even the genetic associations are roughly the same. This is a disorder of males and females, and especially those under the age of 35. You can see from this graph of males and females being stacked that most of the cases here, I think this is probably about 80 plus percent of the cases are under the age of 35, but over the age of 17. If we had kids included in here, it would be a much bigger um, uh, hump going to, to your left. 
The challenge here is that this is the leading cause of autoimmune uh, rheumatic uh, FUO. By all series that have been described since the Petersdorf series, it make, the second Petersdorf series, it makes up between six and 11% of all cases of FUO and making it the number one rheumatic cause. The problem is that somewhere over a third of patients are gonna develop erosive inflammatory polyarthritis that looks just like RA. It does have morbidity. This condition shouldn't kill anybody, but it could based on the high dose of steroids being used, um, the febrile hospitalizations and development of macrophage activation syndrome. The diagnosis really requires the diagnostic triad of quotidian fever, evanescent rash, and polyarthritis. So this is my patient admitted to me in 1983. She came in with spiking fevers up to 105. It spiked twice a day in the first few days and had a high baseline. And then after we put her on salicylates in high doses, she went to a once a day spike, okay, over 102. And then when she went on prednisone, you can see the fever curve starts to um, dissipate and reduce in its magnitude. This is very typical of someone who has adult onset Stills disease or systemic onset JIA. By the way, we will take questions at the end of this lecture. You can ask questions along by using the Q&A tab, okay? Um, quotidian fevers, that means arise above 102 and return to baseline once a day. The interesting thing about Stills disease is that this quotidian fever is a true circadian fever. They occur at the same time in every person every day meaning that it's usually late in the evening. It can be late in the afternoon, seldom late in the morning, never at 7 a.m. in the morning when you have your endogenous cortisol peak between 5 and 7 a.m. So they said 10 o'clock, 2 a.m., they get the spike. Tomorrow, they're going to get the same spike. It starts with a shaking chill, followed by this spike that goes to 102, 103, 104, maybe higher. And then after a few hours, it returns back to normal. They defervesce drench their bed clothes, have, often have to change the sheets and their clothes and take a shower. The rash is called a stills rash. It's also called a JRA rash, a rheumatoid rash. Not sure why it's called a rheumatoid rash, but it is what? Evanescent, meaning it comes and goes and changes daily, maybe maximal during febrile episodes. It is a salmon pink morbilliform maculopapular rash, maybe with areas of coalescent. It likes the trunk, neck, and extremities, never the palms soles or face. It has associated features of dermatographism shown on the right where this young uh, man was scratching himself. Look at his belly. He has a protuberant belly from a megaly. He's got dermatographism, the development of rash, and kebnerization, rash where he has previously scratched himself. Um, urticarian pruritus is quite common in patients with Stills disease. 30 to 40 percent of patients uh, and urticare is a common manifestation of many auto-inflammatory disorders. This is the, again, I don't know how it looks on your screen. This is supposed to be a faint um, uh, red or a pinkish kind of rash. Uh, it likes to be on the trunk. It also likes the same distribution as you might see with dermatomyositis. You can see on the right shoulder there, the, the, the woman, this is a, actually one of the mothers of one of the residents that, uh, that was in my program. Um, she's been scratching herself and now she has an exaggerated wheel and flare or dermatographism. Here's a more faint picture on the chest of one of my patients. Another multiple choice question, which is true about joint involvement in Stills disease? Oligoarthritis is more common. Two, sacroiliitis in 20%. Three, seropositivity predicts erosions. And four, more than 25% develop erosive polyarthritis. Again, you should know the answer to this because I've already said it twice. It's number four. Up to a third of patients will get an erosive polyarthritis. It looks just like rheumatoid arthritis. It can have erosions. It has the same distribution, PIPs, MCPs, wrists, elbows, shoulders, knees, and then it settles down. But the distinctive thing is that with time, the, those with chronic arthritis, half of them are going to have intercarpal ankylosis, first described by Tom Metzger at the University of Pittsburgh with Wally Christie in 1976 showing a pericapitate distribution of ankylosis. Let me show you some pictures from the University of Pittsburgh. And actually, these were Gerald Rodman's patients back in 1972. LK in August shows up with high fevers, serositis, crazy looking labs, and wrist pain. This is his x-ray, looks pretty normal. This is his x-ray seven months later, and he clearly has ankylosis between the capitate and the metacarpals. 
also between the hamate and also over here uh, with the lunate. Um, so this is fairly typical. And while you occasionally see this in psoriatic and rheumatoid disease, it's more common in Stills disease, but psoriatic and rheumatoid disease is way more common. So think of those three, certainly think of Stills. Weight loss can be profound. When these people are really sick with their high fevers, their, their, their weight is gonna drop like this with their anemia, with their albumin. It all goes at the same, it's a cytokine storm going on here. Prodromal sore throat in 70%, uh, myalgias in three quarters, hepatic dysfunction in three quarters, lymphadenopathy is seen in two thirds, and then everything else, hepatosplenomegaly and serositis between 20 and 40% of patients. These are the distinctive features. On the top right is a patient of mine with myocarditis, the same patient with a very striking chest x-ray showing pleural effusions, pneumonitis, pericarditis, pericardial effusions. He went on to have an endomyocardial biopsy showing myocardial uh, in inflammation, but also he needed a pericardial window to treat the serositis. The labs may be as striking as the patient appears. These people look septic. Their labs are notably negative for serologies. Their white count should be high with a big left shift. They quickly develop an anemia. The albumin will drop precipitously. Sed rate and CRP are up in 90 plus, plus percent. Everybody loves ferritin, but folks, it's only elevated in 50% in of patients. It is not as predictive as you'd like it to be. Look on the right. This is the distribution of white count with the peak distribution being here around 20,000 in the middle. Look at the sed rate on the bottom. 50% of patients have a sed rate greater than 90. 90% of patients have a sed rate greater than 50. That's what I came up with. Hyperferinemia, as many times I've seen it in my career and managing patients, inpatient, outpatient, I see more of the, what's on the left than Stills disease, which is on the bottom. Um, iron overload, hemochromatosis, liver disease, um, neoplasia. I've seen more cases with lupus and hyperferinemia than I've seen with Stills, and I've seen a lot of patients with Stills. Nonetheless, it's a good biomarker, but it's not the best biomarker, uh, and I think you should consider these other causes if you see ferritins of 10,000 or 5,000 or more. On the right, you could see that it's high in active disease. It's low in inactive disease. On the bottom right, shows you what happens to systemic JIA patients and their ferritin levels as they are diagnosed and treated. It will drop. Now, when I see ferritin, I'm worried about macrophage activation syndrome. I mean, and again, this is serious because it carries up to a 38% chance of death. Uh, the number one cause of macrophage activation syndrome uh, if you consider all causes, is going to be systemic onset JIA with adult stills not too far behind. But it can occur in other autoimmune diseases, including lupus and vasculitis, and patients who have severe infections and DB and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They present with hepatosplenomegaly, fevers, high LFT. So far, it sounds like stills disease. But where are they different? Well, the LFTs rise. They get scary high. They develop their high white count becomes now a low white count. They can develop DIC, they develop thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, and hyperferinemia. These are really bad prognostic signs. The sed rate drops owing to liver dysfunction, and the, but the CRP continues to rise. Don't miss macrophage activation syndrome. Early intervention, if they're not already on an IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitor, give it to them. You can get macrophage activation syndrome on IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitors. Um, cyclosporin and etoposide have been the uh, preferred ways of managing cytokine storm uh, and treatment of the underlying disease. But now we have an FDA-approved drug for the, uh, the inhibition of gamma interferon. It's called gamafant or emipalumab. Uh, we talked about this at ACR. Uh, it's been uh, approved for use in HLH, and you could use this in your MAS patients who have either systemic JA or Stills disease, uh, it's highly effective uh, and, and you should look at the data that we've previously published on that. The diagnosis of Stills rests on criteria. Many of you, I don't know why, will call this Stills disease when you see someone with a febrile disorder, not necessarily documented, uh, and you don't know what the cause is. And well, probably Stills disease. Well, it's not that easy, folks. You either need to meet the minor or ma and major criteria either put forth by Yamaguchi in 92 or my criteria in 2000 or even Fautrell. ILAR has criteria. I don't expect you to know these. You could look them up on the internet. 
but I got a website for you. It's not called Room Now. It's called Stills Now. And this is a, 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 a spot you can go to to find lectures and videos and papers on Stills disease. And in the far right, you can see something called a diagnosis calculator. Pull this up, and all you got to do is check a bunch of boxes like this, and the website will make the calculation for you as to whether the patient, in this case, this case had what? Elevated sed rate, high white count, age less than 35, daily fevers, painful swollen joints, carpal ankylosis, uh, sore throat, splenomegaly, sounds like Stills disease. Well, didn't meet my criteria, did meet Yamaguchi criteria, and did not meet the ILAR criteria. So this can be a helpful tool in managing and diagnosing patients with Stills disease. A multiple choice question. In patients who have chronic fevers, who would you order genetic testing? Let's say it doesn't meet criteria for Stills disease. The fevers aren't spiking daily. They're kind of intermittent and maybe 101. Um, would you do it in patients who have a family history of fevers and similar symptoms? Um, would you do it if they don't have daily fevers? Would you do it in those not meet, meeting Yamaguchi criteria? Or I've never ordered genetic tests and don't know how to or when to. Well, I would say that in items number two or three might be reasonable. Throw in number one, why not? You can do genetic testing when the diagnosis is not certain and it's not quite so hard. But why do genetic testing when you can make the diagnosis of, of an undiagnosed periodic fever based on the duration of the fever at presentation? So look on the far left. If the person has fever that lasts for one day or less, that's very typical for the, the CAPS disorder, the cryopyranopathy called familial cold autoinflammatory syndrome. Kids exposed to air conditioning, they get fever and rashes. Guess what? They respond well to IL-1 inhibition and you can do a genetic test for that. However, let's say the fever lasts for up to three days. You might consider FMF if it's an adult, if it's a not, um, you might also consider Muckle-Well syndrome. You could treat them in maybe an empiric trial, a colchicine or anakinra, or an IL-1 inhibitor will tell you, or you could do gene testing for the MEFB gene for FMF, or the uh, inflammasome genes for um, uh, Muckle-Well syndrome. Three to seven days is typical in kids, more so than adults, hyper-IGD and FAPA syndrome, also known as Marshall syndrome. They may respond to empiric trials, or you could look for the MVK gene, the mevalonic kinase gene, which is a very common disorder, again, seen in kids. This is called the hyper-IgD syndrome. If it's about two weeks of fever, seven to 21 days, you should consider TRAPS, the TNF receptor rearrangement that leads to periodic fevers lasting daily for up to two or three weeks. Etanercept works here. Actually, IL-1 inhibitors work probably better than does etanercept, but you can also do the genetic testing. And then if they have daily fevers, you should consider soja, adult stills, and Schnitzler syndrome in adults. There you can do an empiric trial. There is no genetic test. How would I get genetic testing? Well, there are a lot of gene um, organizations like GeneDx here where you can order a panel from these folks. This is what we did in one of my patients. And you get back a report on either one gene that you've looked for, or you can get back a report on seven or eight genes that might be associated with common auto-inflammatory disorders. This one, you order it through them or through your commercial laboratory that you're linked to, can often cost thousands of dollars and take 18 letters and four to seven weeks to get back a result. It's a hassle. My preferred way, instead of going with one of these companies, is for you to contact Invitae.com. Invitae has an auto-inflammatory panel of 107 genes. They also sell this panel for thousands and thousands of dollars, but if you make this a direct pay where the patient can pay for this, then you can get this for, I've gotten for as little as $75. Usually the prices, you can negotiate it down to $100. All you have to do is make the order, express to the company that the patient doesn't have any money and we need a cash pay uh, intervention here, that they don't have insurance that's going to pay for this. And the, the company will contact the patient on how to get the blood drawn and what samples you can see a lot of genes here, including most of the common ones that you really want to know about. The problem here is that often we don't have a genetic cause, even, patients, even in patients who clearly have an auto-inflammatory syndrome that is not Stills disease or FMF or one of the other known conditions. Um, John Hausman tweeted, and by the way, I want to thank Richard Stern here in Dallas 
who told who was the one who told me about invitae.com in making a, diag a genetic diagnosis. John Hausman tweeted at last year's ACR that uh, the NIH's uh, Amanda Umbrello was doing a presentation and she said that 60% of the auto-inflammatory patients followed in the NIH auto-inflammatory clinic do not yet have a diagnosis and are therefore considered undifferentiated, meaning that there's still a lot we don't know about auto-inflammatory disease. Doesn't mean we can't do the evaluations, doesn't mean we can't make the diagnosis or even treat it. So the keys to diagnosis here is a fever has to be above 39. It has to be circadian, it has to be same time every day or every afternoon, like clockwork. I mean, patients will tell you at 10.09 or 1 a.m. or you know, some number very exact. The stills rash is very helpful, and sometimes you need to ask the patient to take a picture of that if it only comes out at night. Use the criteria, don't go by your gut, because if you, you use the criteria, and I don't expect you to know the criteria, either mine or Yamaguchi or ILAR or Fortrell's, but use the, the stills uh, disease calculator that you can get at stillsnow.com. You could try an IL-1 inhibitor and see if you get a diagnostic response. That's pretty good, but realize I've seen patients who had um, flu or who had lymphoma who had their fever go away when they were given anakinra, so it is not truly diagnostic. And then if you're not certain about the diagnosis, don't be afraid to invoke genetic testing as a tool um, to manage these patients. How do you follow them? I can tell you that, that if they have articular disease, as shown on the top left, you're, it's just like following RA. Synovitis, TJC, SJC, RAPID3, gas score, C-dice score, set and acute phase reactants, and usual monitoring labs. But systemic disease is more, more difficult. You wanna watch for the triad symptoms, fever, rash, and arthritis, but if they have other things, hepatosplenomegaly, serositis, lymphadenopathy, those are all signs of active systemic disease. Articular disease is treated just like articular disease in RA. Systemic disease, high-dose steroids and cytokine inhibitors with or without methotrexate is the way to go. Sed rate and CRP is elevated and more telltale in over 90% of patients with stills. Ferritin, while it is somewhat specific, only 50%. The neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, you can look at the bottom, top on the right-hand side, you can see it has a very high predictive value there. Um, and I think you should consider using that. We don't use it often enough, and it should be greater than three. If it's almost six or more, that's what you see in MAS or impending MAS patients. Aldolase, we tweeted this uh, just recently. Aldolase is a very good biomarker in patients who have auto-inflammatory diseases, especially if they are IL-1 driven. And aldolase, what, what, what is, their CPKs are normal. It reflects hepatic activity. Um, so draw the aldolase, it'll be high, and usually not like, you know, 9.7 or 10.6, they'll be really high, like 15, 20, or 30. And, and it is something that you can follow. Their CPKs will be normal. Their LFTs may or not be normal. There are other things that are out there, but they're experimental, and I wouldn't recommend them at this point. If you have a patient who says they have fever, and, but you have no documentation, you have no chart that says that they do, go to amazon.com. Look for these wireless smart um, thermometers and this is something that you can do to monitor a baby's temperature, but you get these little pads that are sticky. You stick it under the armpit of the patient and it, it is Bluetooth connected to their cell phone and you can get a 24 seven monitoring of fever. And these last, I think for two to three weeks at a time and they give you enough to last for six weeks. You can get a really good estimation of person's fever before you institute expensive therapies in someone who may or may not need it. Last multiple choice, after starting high-dose steroids in someone with Stills disease, what drug would you then next use if they weren't quite controlled? Would you use methotrexate, a TNF inhibitor, number two, three, an IL-1 inhibitor, four, an IL-6 inhibitor, five, something else? Well, we actually did a survey of this and had over 350 responses from you, the rheumatologist, and we showed that half of you were going to use a biologic and the other half were going to use methotrexate. Of those that use biologic, three quarters believe that this is an IL-1 driven disease and therefore are more likely to use anakinra. And about a quarter believe that IL-6 is what's behind this and we're more likely to use an IL-6 inhibitor like tocilizumab or cerilumab. So management of systemic disease is steroids with or without methotrexate and then either an IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitor, articular disease on the right, 
non-steroidals, methotrexate, other DMARDs, combinations DMARDs, and then if you need to, the same thing you would do with RA. Biologics, TNF, non-TNF, or JAK inhibitors, all are very reasonable. Um, you, there are a number, of one, a number of IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitors that you can choose from, and then you make the decision based on if they're doing better. There are others, including JAK inhibitors, which seem to work uh, somewhat on gamma interferon production and interferon production in general. Calcineurin inhibitors, uh, cyclospore and tacrolimus have been used in some patients with systemic disease as well. I want to end by saying we have grand rounds coming up next Tuesday, all part of Tuesday night, rheumatology. Uh, Alvin Wells is going to be talking next week uh, about telemedicine and what are we going to do next. He's already done three videos for us. We're going to get another video from Alvin. The week after, the 28th, Artie Cavanaugh is going to do Journal Club on the Annals of Rheumatic Disease article, Withdrawal of Low-Dose Steroids in Lupus. Dr. Calabri is going to talk about IL-6 signaling in health and disease. On the 12th, Joan Merrill is going to talk about what does COVID-19 have to do with lupus, and she's not going to be talking about hydroxychloroquine, nonetheless an interesting talk. Philip Robinson, one of the guys who started the Global Rheumatology Alliance in the COVID-room-covid.org registry uh, that's been, almost enrolled 300 patients at this point, um, and I would encourage you, if you have one of your patients with what looks like suspected coronavirus infection or proven enroll them in this registry. We need that data. Uh, he's going to talk on the 19th live from Queensland. And then on 26th, John Kay is going to talk to us about biosimilars and what we need to know about biosimilars. We'll probably continue this into the first week of June and then take a summer vacation and then resume back after the summer. Uh, I hope you found that lecture to be useful. Now we're going to go to the Q&A part of our lecture. Um, don't touch the front of your mask. Thank you very much. That's absolutely true. I have a problem with this face in many ways. Um, sick COVID-19 patients also seem to get masks. That's absolutely true. I believe the cytokine storm everyone's talking about really is inflammasome activation, which is why the IL-6 inhibitors work, which is why there are a number of trials going on right now um, using IL-1 inhibitors as well. Um, and so this really is macrophage activation syndrome which is important because you, the rheumatologist, may be called into service when they don't know what else to do. And again, what else do you do? IL-1 inhibition, IL-6 inhibition, emipalumab, look it up. Um, it's important. I'm going to put some of these slides up um, as downloads uh, if you want to um, download the slides and have them as a reference. Uh, what else do you use after those? I would use a JAK inhibitor, probably tofacitinib because I've seen data about tofacitinib and it's in it. It's, it's uh, ability to inhibit uh, the interference, especially gamma interferon, which is probably why um, some, TNF, some JAK inhibitors have a high rate of zoster infections and others maybe less. Um, that might be a backup therapy in addition to atoposide. And patients with masks that are very sick in the ICU, um, has anyone given uh, etoposide and anakinra together? I've not seen it. I don't think you need to do it. I think atoposide is a more slow acting medicine Anakinra, a more fast-acting medicine. Obviously, I favor anakinra. I'm not a hematologist. When you call in the hematologist, that's what they're going to write for. Everyone else is either doing cyclosporin, a calcineurin inhibitor, or when a rheumatologist gets involved, um, we're going to do IL-1, IL-6, and now uh, gamma-fant or emipalumab. Um, is Stills disease antigen-driven or is it auto-inflammatory? It clearly looks to me to be auto-inflammatory. Um, there's very little evidence of it being an antigen-driven process. It doesn't have any autoantibodies associated with it. Uh, it meets many of the characteristics seen in all of the other auto-inflammatory syndromes. Um, I, uh, Richard, that was I, I, I struggled with this question for many years, uh, and I, I truly firmly believe it belongs in the auto-inflammatory category. However, if that is true, then why is there not a gene? Well, partly because this is an acquired disorder. And most of the genetic monogenic disorders are there almost constitutively from birth or early in life. Um, and I think that um, it's possible to have an acquired auto-inflammatory disorder. I mean, that's what we see in gout and Bichette's and sarcoid and even Blau syndrome, uh, Blau's being genetic. Um, many of these developing even in adulthood. Um, David Knapp from uh, Tennessee says that a patient with clinical stills um, who does meet full criteria is a cult malignancy or infection or TB, 
a consideration that requires invasive testing like bone marrow biopsy or tissue biopsies? Really good question. I think that this day and age, you're more likely to get a consult in someone who's been fully worked up as opposed to coming to you de novo where you hospitalize them and you do the workup. Often they've been seen by ID and a hospitalist and maybe even other services and not uncommonly drives us crazy when we get called last to the table and people are futzing around not making a diagnosis that you can make in your sleep. So often that is done. I would say that, that a bone marrow um, biopsy and or aspirate could be a very important part of an FUO workup if cult all cultures prove negative and it doesn't look like an auto-inflammatory or Stills disease diagnosis, I would consider that and or a blind muscle biopsy in some people, but I also am more likely to make the diagnosis if the patient meets criteria, then we can safely move forward. Criteria do, by the way, say you must have been worked up sufficiently and had infection and malignancy ruled out in those cases. Uh, can you tell me more about traps? You know, it um, used to be called Hibernian fever. It is sort of uh, European descent individuals. Fevers can last as little as seven days, and uh, use, but it's more like two to three weeks. Um, there is a periodicity. Um, they get a lot of the same features that you get with the other auto-inflammatory syndromes, which includes fever and rashes and crazy-looking labs and systemic uh, manifestations like many of the auto-inflammatory auto syndromes, they also get a propensity to get secondary amyloidosis. That can be systemic amyloidosis or renal amyloidosis, and we know we say that amyloidosis commonly occurs on the other side of the pond in Europe and in the UK and in Israel, not so much over here. Well, I've seen a lot of stills patients. I've had two of my patients die with renal failure and renal amyloidosis. So amyloidosis occurs in the cryopyranopathies, caps, muckle wells. Um, uh, it also occurs in traps and many of the auto-inflammatory syndromes. What is your experience with IVIG and mass cytokine storm? I have none. I've seen some reports. I think it reflects frustration more than anything else. I'm frustrated by the use of IVIG. It's to me a bit, a bit voodoo late in the game, and I like to know a little bit more about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, yet there may be a good role for IVIG wear in refractory inflammatory myositis, and I'll say in early skin uh, progressive systemic sclerosis. There's some trials going on in that. Um, and there's a few others, obviously, that many of you have known about. Um, uh, I missed this, but how does the rate of thrombotic, thrombotic events fit with mass vis-a-vis -vis COVID or stills. Um, thrombotic events are not typical in stills. DIC, sometimes with thrombotic events, have been described, rarely with hemorrhagic events. Um, I did describe this week a report. Um, actually, I didn't describe it. New England Journal described in a correspondence report of three cases of patients with thrombotic CNS lesions that were hemorrhagic and associated with IgA anticardiolipin antibodies and IgG um, uh, beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibodies. Uh, and these patients had encephalopathy uh, and neurologic deficits. Um, does thrombotic events occur with mass? It's not high on the list, but I'm sure it occurs. I just haven't seen it that often. Um, next, would you consider a patient with intermittent fever for a few years and not daily fevers for genetic testing. If it, it truly is intermittent fevers and it fits that pattern of either three days of fever, seven days of fever, um, or uh, 14 to 21 days, and then they go into disease-free intervals, then yes, I would do genetic testing. I gotta tell you, I see a lot of Stills disease consults. I might see 20 uh, a year. I've probably seen hundreds in my career. And the number one Stills disease referral that I see is someone who thinks they have a fever when they really have fibromyalgia and they tell me that their fever is 100. That's not a fever. We're talking about a fever greater than 101 is what I, is, would be my cutoff for consideration of genetic testing. Actar gel, not unless you put a gun to my head and I still would not do it. It's voodoo, it's not approved for anything. What's well, approved for some things, it's not been tested in anything. 
The company should do trials and diseases it wants to sell the drug. It's way too expensive. It, bankrupt, it bankrupted Rockford, Illinois. If you ask about Actar gel, I'm sorry, you get the brutal, honest truth. It's criminal to use it in this situation. All the other steroids work. Why would you use the most expensive one? What about Ilaris instead of Anakin? A really good question uh, from John Tesser. John, how are you, buddy? Um, John, you should be giving these lectures. I'm going to call you. You're going to give one of these lectures. Um, Ilaris and Anakinra, I think it's a very good choice. I think the, the benefit of Anakinra is its weakness. It has a short half-life. It's got a half-life of six hours. So if you're treating Stills disease, you got to give the drug at night. Don't give it in the daytime. And if they're not responding, double the dose, especially a big person. Um, but the problem is, is the short half-life, but it also works fast. Almost everybody that's going to respond to IL-1 inhibition will probably respond uh, in the first day or two, if not the first shot. The longer-acting um, uh, canakinumab uh, may take a few days to really get a response, but it may be the better drug in the long run. So I am currently starting out with people in the hospital or new onset, severely active systemic disease. I'll give them anakinra. It's easy to get in the hospital, by the way. It's harder to get as an outpatient, as you well know. But then once they've been on daily injections with anakinra, then I would probably switch them over to a longer acting um, uh, agent. And um, Ilaris would be a good choice. Now, right now, there is no drug that's approved for adult stills disease. That's an IL-1 inhibitor. Um, the IL-6 inhibitor is approved. The IL-1 inhibitor, canakinumab, and um, I, I guess there's another one uh, that they are approved in kids over the age of two with systemic onset disease. I use that wording to try to get um, my IL-1 inhibitor approved in my adults saying they have systemic onset JIA. It just happens to be an adult and they are over the age of two. Meets all other criteria and then you send them, you know, a, a wad of papers this thick showing that it does work. They'd actually have to approve it. Um, uh, Andres Caseno uh, asks, is methotrexate the first line medication for stills? What about anakinra as first line? Well, that's a great question because you are either um, being prudent about your therapeutics and expenses. You know, prior to the availability of, uh, and by the way, I want to say TNF inhibitors are not to be used in acute systemic disease. They don't work. They don't work. Save your TNF inhibitors for management of RA, chronic inflammatory polyarthritis. But acute systemic disease, prior to biologics, the treatment was high-dose steroids, and they don't respond to 20. They need one to two milligrams per kilogram. That means 40, 60, 80 milligrams a day and methotrexate because you want to do steroid sparing. And that worked at about half the patients. So Andres, using methotrexate would not be a bad choice. The problem is you will expose them to a longer period of steroid use. Now, on the other hand, the use of an IL-1 inhibitor is a quick empiric trial. It's sort of like one shot and boom, you have your answer as, or as to whether or not this is an auto-inflammatory diagnosis. Would methotrexate work in other auto-inflammatory diagnoses? Less commonly so. Would the IL-1 work in stills and auto-inflammatory diagnosis? More likely so. So anyway, good, very good question. Um, I think these days, um, I'm probably using more anakinra right out of the gate. Um, but I probably could easily use methotrexate if I were a situation where cost containment was important. Um, Dr. Abelis, um, I presented an abstract at the AC ACR, uh, at the ACR indicated the PMR was rarely associated with fever. Well, that's true. Um, it's not a common manifestation of it. PMR, I would say, is a seldom uh, the cause of an FUO. GCA, on the other hand, more commonly. So I, whenever I include GCA, temporal arteritis, I'll always throw in PMR because PMR patients may have fever and you'll find plenty of reports in the literature saying PMR uh, presenting as an FUL. They're out there, but I agree that GCA, temporal arteritis, is a more common cause of an FUL that could be could still confused with Stills disease. And guess what? They're gonna be old. Stills disease doesn't occur in people over the age of 65. They're gonna be white. Stills disease is in all races, all sexes, and is usually in much younger people. Um, <laughs> FB3, um, you are a special person, FB1 or FB2. Do all COVID patients intubated, uh, or should they be given a biologic? I think a COVID patient these days 
who ends up in, in the ICU is going to get immediately put on uh, anti-malarial, either chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. I think if they have widespread um, pulmonary manifestations or get intubated, I think they're quickly going on an IL-6 inhibitor, if not uh, in a study with an IL-1 inhibitor. Um, I know of a patient that uh, they waited until the IL-6 levels to come back before they started the tocilizumab. Yet, at presentation, the patient's CRP level was 500 milligrams per liter. Gigantic, gigantic. And I said, wake up. Where do you think the CRP is coming from? It's all IL-6. And yes, the patient did have tremendous IL-6 levels um, and should have been given Actemra um, two days earlier. But nonetheless, the, I think that patient has done well. Um, Mr. Anonymous says, what are your thoughts about remdesivir and IL-6 or IL-1 inhibition together? Obviously not in Stills disease, you're lapsing into a corona discussion, but um, I think all those are experimental therapies. Let me go back to the previous question from uh, uh, one of my colleagues about the use of um, a, a biologic in patients with, in the ICU with pulmonary manifestation cytokine storm. If you get uh, the corona infection and you don't have severe respiratory distress, you know how you're going to be managed? You're not going to be put on hydroxychloroquine. Um, you're going to just stay home and you're going to monitor your symptoms and treat symptoms symptomatically. ID specialists are not starting those patients on hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or uh, Actemra. So I, I think that these drugs are basically being used in the most severe cases usually under um, direct observation in the hospital and or in ICU. That's talking about the coronavirus-infected patients. Uh, Dr. Horvath, those with hyperferonemia, um, is there a certain level that's concerning? When it's five to 10,000 or more, is Stills disease more likely than, than a malignancy or an iron overload situation? No, it is not. There's no number which Stills disease is more concerning. The higher the number, the more I'm concerned about macrophage activation syndrome. What's happening to their white count? Is it dropping when it was high? What's happening to their platelet count? When it was high and now it's dropping. What's happening to the sed rate? It was high and now it's dropping. The patient's looking worse. The lungs are looking worse. The liver is going down the toilet. It's MAS. I think, again, ferritin is a great measure to use. Um, it is not the biomarker for stills. The stills biomarker are their symptoms, the key symptoms that we talked about aldolase levels, the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, sedrate and CRP, yes, yeah, sure, ferritin, but use ferritin as a tool about how much you're going to worry about the risk of MAS. Um, IVIG might be useful for um, COVID-associated uh, uh, ADE antibody-dependent enhancement from neutralization antibodies with SARS. Yeah, I, but I, but um, gene IVIG and COVID would be experimental, and um, and now we're trying to find a niche for it. I would not be recommending it as a rheumatologic consultant. You're welcome to, not me. I'm not on that list. Um, Dr. Quinnett at the Oxner Clinic, how are you, Robert? Uh, any evidence of heterozygosity for the autoinflammatory genes in uh, stills or uh, systemic JIA? No, but it has been shown that patients diagnosed mainly with systemic JIA, when they do undergo uh, genetic testing, you can find a known autoinflammatory diagnosis in as much as I think 10 to 20% of patients, mainly correcting the diagnosis. I don't think it is a, a heterozygous presentation of a known uh, genetic defect that is leads to a more confused diagnosis of Stills disease. I think that Again, when the more atypical the patient is, the more you should do genetic testing to confirm the diagnosis of systemic JIA in kids and adults. What's my first go-to drug in stills? Um, it always depends, but steroids, 80 milligrams a day, 60 milligrams a day, um, uh, IV solumedrol, 40 BID if they're in the hospital, and then based on what's going on, uh, you know, you could even use methotrexate and high-dose steroids in patients who have LFTs that are up to four or five times normal because correcting inflammation will correct that. Most people are afraid to do it when LFTs are that high. 
most people with LTs that high might use prednisolone over prednisone because it's less metabolized by the liver. Um, but again, my go-to is high-dose steroids, and I, I probably would use more anakinra uh, uh, as my first choice, especially in someone who is hospitalized. Um, let's see. Um, so in a patient who has intermittent fevers for three days, um, but negative FMF testing and no other causes of fever, but has the right ethnicity, meaning of Mediterranean origin, would you consider a colchicine trial? Sure, it's easy. It's well tolerated. Why not do it? Um, I might even consider after that a trial of, of anakinra. Um, the problem is that uh, FMF, the attacks last one to three days. They can almost always be prevented by colchicine or treated with acute steroids rather than using an IL-1 inhibitor or other agents to manage FMF. So I think that's, a, that's certainly a, a um, a smart thing to do uh, just based on the duration of the fever. Um, I used Ilaris in one traps and one anic and uh, in one stills after anakinra. And yeah, it works after anakinra. And, and IL-1 inhibition, actually the early data on uh, traps was they didn't respond to infliximab, but they do respond to etanercept. Guess what, folks? They have way better responses. I think 50% of them respond to TNF inhibition and etanercept but like 80, 90% respond to IL-1 inhibition, either anakinra or canakinumab or um, rolonicept is the other one. Rolonicept just happens to be ungodly expensive at more than $250,000 for a year's supply. Canakinumab um, uh, uh, over 100,000 is still quite expensive. And, and anakinra, I don't know what the recent cost is, but it's probably closer to 60,000 a year for daily anakinra in someone who needs it. Um, Blau syndrome, I'm not the expert, uh, 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 Barat, I wish I could answer that for you, but um, you're gonna have to read up on that. Maybe someday I'll write about it. Um, what is the role of JAK inhibitors, if any, in stills or systemic JIA? I would use them. Um, I have used them to manage um, MAS in someone who could not, be, uh, could not get cyclosporin and or um, etoposide, and it worked really well. Uh, I was able to um, stop the patient's IL-6 inhibitor and continue them on methotrexate and JAK inhibitor and control their fevers and get them out of MAS. But again, this is experimental. I don't, I mean, there are trials I think that people would like to do here. The problem is trials in systemic JIA and adult stills are very difficult to do because it still is a rare disease. As I said, there are 20 cases this year in Dallas. How many am I gonna see in Dallas where all my friends here know I'm interested in this, know I'm the self-declared expert? I might see one or two from the local community, which means that the vast majority of these cases are running out there, are, are, are out there under the care of many different people. So um, there may be a role for the JAK inhibitors. Will they all be the same? I don't think so, because I think the JAK inhibitors, as you're going to see in the future, have a differential effect on gamma interferon in in vitro studies um, or ex vivo studies, not in real life studies. Um, again, I don't expect real life clinical trials to happen there. Um, let's see, a pulmonologist in the ICU task force, 73 recommended hydroxychloroquine when COVID uh, presented with pneumonia, but not ARDS or CSS. I don't know what CSS is. Pneumonia, but not ARDS. I'm sorry, there's a fine line between those two. It's not surprising. We're talking about severe patients. Again, the patient who stays at home uh, is not getting hydroxychloroquine. If you look at our, our task force, I'm sorry, our town hall we had uh, almost uh, uh, two weeks ago, um, we asked our uh, experts, including two ID specialists, would they recommend patients go on hydroxychloroquine, our patients go on hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis? They all said no. Were they up in, up in arms about the uh, overblown um, uh, effects or supposed effects of hydroxychloroquine? They all said yes, but yet they all said in response to the question, would you take hydroxychloroquine if you got COVID? They all said yes, mainly saying, well, it might help and, and I know it's safe and that's why they would use it. So there's a little bit of a paradox there, but again, I think we have to safeguard the stockpile of antimalarials for patients who really need them um, and make those decisions on an individual case-by-case uh, -case basis.
I got time for maybe one more question. Um, um, what about steroids? Uh, no, that's a Corona question. Um, I'm going to end there. Um, and thank you for your time and, and taking the time to view this presentation. Be sure to tune in um, for future um, lectures on Tuesday night. I think we've got a, a cast of speakers who are really superb. And I think you'll find those worthwhile. Um, I'll post this in the next few days on the website. I'll try to post um, some slides that I can share for you as well. Have a good night. Tune into Room Now. Bye now.